0: This is TanakhCast. Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 12, Genesis chapters 40 through 43. Previously on TanakhCast. Lie with me. No. Yosef languishes in prison, but now he is the newly appointed servant to the pharaoh's cupbearer and baker, who, though also in prison, still get a servant to attend to them. Each of these disgraced officials has a dream, which Yosef interprets nimbly, and, and with the interpretation that spells well for the cupbearer comes a request, quote, pray deal kindly with me and call me to mind, to Pharaoh, so that you have me brought out of this house. But as chapter 40 concludes, the chief cupbearer did not keep Yosef in mind, he forgot him. Two years later, Pharaoh has a set of vexing dreams, the first with two sets of seven cows emerging from the Nile, one set of seven fat and healthy, and another set skinny and sickly. In the other dream, the cows are replaced by ears of grain. In both dreams, the sickly seven devour the healthy seven. Now, what could that mean? Hmm. And yet, no one knows. But then, suddenly... The cupbearer recalls a similarly vexing dream he had and how his servant in prison capably interpreted it. And so Yosef is summoned, and after a quick shave and costume change, Yosef is before Pharaoh to state simply, quote, Pharaoh's dream is one, And the plan Yosef unfolds to deal with impending feast and famine is so astute and sound, Pharaoh hands Yosef his signet ring and says, Make it so. So Yosef, now renamed Safnat Paneach, administers Egypt's great economic expansion and plans for the inevitable famine that comes in chapter 42. So when Yaakov sends the same ten brothers who sold Yosef into slavery down to Egypt to buy food, well, technically nine sold him. Uvain was curiously absent at that moment. Yosef recognizes his brothers immediately, and he speaks harshly with them because... That's right, they're now in store for a little midah keneged Mida. Yosef accuses the brothers of being spies. They deny the charge, recounting how they are really 12 simple brothers, but the youngest remained in Canaan and, quote, one is no more. Binyamin, the text notes, was excluded from this important family errand. He is not allowed to stray too far out of Yaakov's sight. Apparently, even years later, Yaakov is still traumatized by Yosef's death while on another family errand. To test their alibi, Yosef demands that they produce the youngest brother. Yosef will not make them wait for the supplies they need, but to make sure they return, he'll keep one brother in prison while the other nine return to Kna'an to fetch Binyamin. To reinforce the demand, he has the brothers locked up for three days to think about it. Immediately, the brothers make the connection, linking Midah to the Midah, their desperate predicament to to the one they forced on Yosef. And Reuven rebukes them further, quote, Did I not say to you, say, do not sin against the child, but you would not listen, for his blood, now satisfaction is demanded. And Yosef takes in the whole exchange, pretending to need a translator, but understanding everything. At one point, overwhelmed with emotion, he turns away and cries, but composes himself before the brothers, regrettably accept the demand, and hand over Shimon as hostage. But on their return to Canaan, the brothers make a shocking discovery. All of their money has been returned to them. What is this that God has done to us? They ask each other. They know that they must face their father and force him to revisit his greatest trauma, the trauma they wrought upon him. So when they return to Yaakov and recount the whole story, Yaakov is distraught. It is I that you, have, that you bereave. Yosef is no more. Shimon is no more. And now you would take Binyamin? Upon me has all of this come? And Reuven, as he did before when his brothers sought to murder Yosef, steps up with a better plan. Take my sons as hostage. Yaakov refuses. And so Shimon languishes in an Egyptian prison as the famine grows heavier in the land. When Yaakov, now referred to as Israel, orders his sons to return to Egypt to procure more food, it is Yehuda who reminds Yisrael about Yosef, or the Egyptians' terms. Yehuda promises Yisrael that he will look after Binyamin and no harm will come to him. Yisrael gives his sons gifts for the Egyptian and even more money. When the brothers return to Egypt with Binyamin, Yosef orders his servant to have them brought to his house. This is most unusual. The brothers fear that they will all be enslaved because of the mix-up with the money beforehand. They confess everything to Yosef's servant who reassures them, and after they meet briefly with Yosef, they present their gifts and are bidden to sit and eat. But Yosef does not eat with them, quote, for Egyptians will not eat bread with Hebrews, for that is an abomination for Egyptians. And the brothers soon discover that they have been seated from oldest to youngest, and that Binyamin has been served a portion five times greater than his brothers. The great astonishment was followed by a great celebration and some drinking. So... There's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. This week I'd like to depart from a larger, more thematic analysis of the portion to focus on two specific elements of the telenovela-ish Yosef narrative. The role of cupbearer in The Life of the Palace... And dream interpretation and predicting the future. First, the cupbearer. And a confession. I've always had a hard time with works of fiction that portray the lives of royalty and nobility as being confining, smothering, rigid. With all that pomp and ceremony transforming silk bodices into street jackets and gold necklaces into chains of enslavement. All those Edith Wharton novels. If only we readers and viewers are supposed to wish, if only Newland Archer could just be himself, he'd be so much happier. Alas, alas, alas.
1: With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey.
0: And all those stories where nobility switches places with the steerage, such as Mark Twain's Prince and the Pauper, the prince learns so much about how the other half buckles under the crushing weight of the feudal system that makes his lavish lifestyle possible, and the pauper bristles at all those customs and manners. Ah. At least Mark Twain has the pauper get a cushy appointment in court, so he never has to return to a grinding life of poverty. But as for the rest of the poors, too bad for them. Well, you know, perhaps my lack of empathy for the protagonist springs from my inability to see myself in their place, which I guess is the definition of empathy. And my lack of it for them.
1: just learn a single trick, Scout. You get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never... Really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view. Sir? Until you climb inside of his skin, walk around in it.
0: But there really is a very simple reason for this lack of empathy, because the minute I project myself into that moment in history, into that person's bespoke shoes, I realize that statistically speaking, I wouldn't be the prince or Newland Archer, or even Lily Bart, I'd probably be the guy in the crowd scene somewhere in the back because I would let the shorter folks ahead of me wearing that funny pointed black hat that Jews are forced to wear in the Middle Ages, which puts me in an altogether different narrative. I felt similarly walking the grounds at Versailles, or the verandas of the Breakers in Newport, which is why I stopped going to those kinds of places, those playgrounds of the rich in one generation that become, you know, two or four generations later the home and garden porn for middle-class tourists. So then I surprised myself even more because I took more of a passing interest in Game of Thrones, which is having a cultural moment these days, which is all about the endless fighting and machinations of the rich and powerful, the incessant masculine posturing and competitiveness and and all that nudity, a lot of nudity, and and couplings in all kinds of permutations and combinations. And then then we shouldn't forget all the folks getting defenestrated, riddled with arrows, killed by shadow wraiths, felled by opportunistic infections, seared by hot melted gold being poured on their head, and various impalings and decapitations. Having stuck with the show for three seasons, many episodes of which I have seen through actual legal means, I wondered why. The success of the show is linked to its two creative consultants. Author George R.R. Martin. I'm on set to ensure that the show honors the spirit of my books. And Adam Friedberg, a 13-year-old boy. I make sure there are lots of boobs in the show. And yes, although that could be one explanation, I think the better one is that this show, like many other dramatic series, is about family and relationships. And even though many of them are fueled by testosterone and alcohol, I'm looking at you, Robert Baratheon. Others are very human and very compelling. Kind of like the matriarchs and patriarchs. So, in considering the scope of human relationships vis-à-vis the powers that be, the Persian scholar and vizier of the Seljuk Empire, Abu Ali al Hasan al-Tusi, otherwise known as Nizam al-Mulk, wrote the following in his book entitled The Book of Government.
1: No king can be without worthy courtiers with whom he may be at his ease and behave without restraint, for the constant society of dignitaries, of princes, and of generals, by emboldening them, detracts from the dignity and majesty of the sovereign. Speaking generally, the king should not make a familiar of any one whom he has appointed to office. For the reason that the freedom which he enjoys on the king's carpet may led him to practice extortion and so do harm to the king's subjects, the governor of a province should forever stand in awe of the king, while the courtier must be ever at his ease, so that the king may derive pleasure from him and the kingly mind find relaxation through him. They should have a fixed time for one another and it should be after the king has held audience and the great officers have all departed. There are certain advantages in having a courtier. One of these is that he is a friend to the king. Another, this, that seeing he is in the king's company day and night, he acts as his bodyguard. Another, that should any danger appear, which heaven forfend, He sacrifices his own body and makes it a shield to ward off the peril. Still a fourth is that the king may hold conversation on a thousand topics with his courtiers in a way impossible with officers and functionaries of the king. Fifthly, courtiers, like spies, bring the king information about his vassals. Sixthly, they converse in the freest manner of all things, good or ill, being drunk or sober and in that there is great benefit. One of the best
0: examples of this that comes about in a rather convoluted way is the relationship between Arya Stark and Tywin Lannister. In season two, Arya Stark, youngest daughter of the noble but beheaded Eddard Stark of House Stark, Lord Paramount of the North, serves as cupbearer to Tywin Lannister, who is the head of House Lannister, Lord of Casterly Rock, Warden of the West, Lord Paramount of the Westerlands, and currently the Hand of the King to his grandson, King Joffrey Baratheon. Arya is also pretending to be a boy, but Tywin sees through that conceit rather quickly. Without going into too much of the twisty turns of the plot, or whether this change made by the TV series to the George R.R. Martin novel A Clash of Kings is a heinous offense, what we witness is Nizam al-Mulk's sage advice play out in real time. As much as Arya is looking to rebuild her scattered and shattered family, Tywin has a family of reprobates and scoundrels and jerks and murderers, who are more interested in acquiring power and influence. Both, however, are looking for someone to connect with, someone that will not pose a threat to them or undermine the existing order, precisely what Nizam al-Mulk prescribed. Beyond the fact that the cupbearer is supposed to taste everything that goes into the king's mouth first, they have numerous opportunities to talk in private. And what unfolds in the case of Arya and Tywin is a rather intimate relationship. Tywin talks about his own father, and not in a bullying, preachy kind of way, but with some affection and some guilt. And Arya, as cupbearer, has to listen and keep silent and, best of all, reserve judgment. Arya, for the first time, also talks of her own father, the beheaded Eddard, and how loyalty resulted in his brutal death. So one can only imagine how close Pharaoh was to his cupbearer, the man who would shield him from harm and would listen to his kvetching, and most importantly for Yosef, to his dreams. So when Pharaoh's cupbearer is imprisoned for an undisclosed faux pas and dreams a disturbing dream of his own, Yosef interprets it, foretelling the cupbearer's eventual restoration to his place alongside
1: the king, and he does so with one request. But keep me in mind with you when it goes well for you. Pray deal kindly with me and call me to mind to Pharaoh, so that you have me brought out of this house. For I was stolen, yes, stolen from the land of the Hebrews. And here I have done nothing that they should have put me in the pit. So, as I mentioned before,
0: when Pharaoh has a disturbing dream of his own, the cupbearer recalls the capable Yosef and has him brought out of prison to provide a similar service to the king of Egypt. Which brings me to the next subject of this week's Tanakhcast, dream interpretation. Freud wrote in The Interpretation of Dreams that, quote, dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. Though the dreams of Yosef analyzed were indeed royal, they did not lead to the part of the mind that is inaccessible to the conscious mind, but that affects behavior and emotions. In other words, these dreams of Pharaoh were not about the past, his childhood, his feelings about his mother, and how everything was really her fault, Pharaoh's dreams portended the future. And Yosef was able to interpret them into a concrete plan of action that saved not only Egypt, but the lives of countless thousands of others, including his family in Canaan. But is what Yosef did kosher? Isn't dream interpretation of this forward-predicting variety, otherwise known as oneiromancy, a form of divination that is prohibited in the Torah? Only one other figure in the Bible interpreted dreams in this manner, Daniel. And things seem to work out for him too. As we discussed in previous Tanakh casts, God communicates with many individuals through dreams and visions, but those have ramifications in real time and are not clouded in images that demand interpretation. And so the question remains, isn't oneromancy a form of divination? The Tanakh's answer is... It depends. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 10 through 12 clearly prohibits any acts of divination.
1: There is not to be found among you one having his son or his daughter cross through fire, an augurer of augury, a hidden sorcerer, a diviner, or an enchanter, or a tyer of magical tying knots, or a seeker of ghosts or favorable spirits, or an inquirer of the dead. For an abomination to Adonai is anyone who does these things, and because of these abominations Adonai your God is dispossessing them from before you. That list, as extensive and as
0: exotic as it is, does not explicitly include a aromancy. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 26 is similarly censorious, commanding that you are not to practice divination, you are not to practice soothsaying. And Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 through 3
1: zeros in specifically on oneromancy. When there arises in your midst a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a portent, and it comes about, the sign or the portent of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us walk after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You are not to hearken to the words of that prophet or to that dreamer of dreams. For I your goddess, only testing you to know if you truly love Ardanai, your god, with all your heart and with all your being.
0: The only issue with oneromancy is how it's applied. If the dream dreamer predicts correctly but counsels infidelity to God, then you should ignore him. But if he preaches the righteous path, then oneromancy is yet another way to tease out God's will. Further evidence of this comes from Exodus 28, where some allowance is given to the kohanim, or the priest, to use the urim v'tumim, or priestly breastplate, to divine God's will. Oneromancy has a long history in the ancient Near East. The Egyptians and Mesopotamians had dream books to aid in decoding dreams. The Sumerians and Hittites practiced incubation, where individuals would sleep in specific locations in the hopes that their dreams would prove to be revelatory. The tide turns, however, in the Greco-Roman period, and various leading figures in apocryphal literature like Ben Sira and Aristius, alongside Mishnaic and later Talmudic sages, begin to discount the importance of dreams. As Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani said in the name of his teacher, Rabbi Yonatan, a man is shown in a dream only what is suggested by his own thoughts, which sounds a lot like Freud to me. So... For Yosef's purposes, oneromancy is not only kosher, it is the means through which he rises to prominence, commanding a place alongside Pharaoh. The act of interpreting God's plan through dreams is an expression of God's will itself. But unlike Arya Stark, whose cup nestles her intimately in the company of kings, Yosef is like a king in his own right. When the Egyptians come to Pharaoh to cry for bread, Pharaoh replies, Go to Yosef, whatever he says you do. Yosef, renamed Sofnat Paneach by the pharaoh himself, has cupbearers and courtiers of his own who assist him in the management of his home and in the smooth running of his work, and most importantly, in the precise execution of his scheme to teach his brothers a lesson they will not soon forget. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or quement at the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, that's T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or quement at the iTunes store, and while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 13 on Genesis chapters 44 through 47. Y'all come back now. Here.